Okay, don't kick me off this podcast. I haven't eaten a Pop-Tart since high school. But I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm going to eat a lot on Monday, apparently. (laughs) Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is confused by the latest health study as I am by when our regular hosts will return to the program. It seems like it's... Not going to be for a few episodes because everybody is off on summer holidays. So we are continuing on with our stream of fantastic guest hosts. So I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am pleased to be joined by two guests filling in for our usual hosts. So we are very pleased to have... Dr. Gitika Kalu, formerly of Brown, <laughs> who did her doctoral work there. I should say formerly of Boston University, really, but but now working at Health Corps Incorporated. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Matt. Excited to be here. And our second guest host is Dr. Hoda Majid from Stanford University. Welcome, Hoda. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So let's jump into things. So in our first segment, which is our journal club segment. We're going to talk about an article that looked at the effect of a sugar tax on sugar consumption in South Africa. For longtime listeners, you'll know that I do a lot of work in South Africa, so this was particularly interesting to me. It was published in PLOS Medicine, and it was entitled Taxed and Untaxed Beverage Intake by South African Young Adults After a National Sugar Sweetened Beverage Tax a before and after study by first author Michael Esman of the Department of Nutrition at the Gillings School of Public Health in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So this one didn't didn't make probably as much headlines. We usually like to report the headlines. But I, I did find one Doc Wire News says, taxed and untaxed beverage intake by South African young adults after a national sugar sweetened beverage tax, a before and after study, which is basically the title of the study. It doesn't actually tell you anything about whether or not it worked in the headline, which is pretty unusual for a headline. But since it was the only one I could find, I thought I would report on it. So Hoda, can you talk us through what they did in this study, what they what they found and what it was all about? Yeah, absolutely. I was really excited to read this study as well. I'm, I'm really interested in this topic. So I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version of the study and then we can delve into the details. So in April 2018, South Africa implemented a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages, or SSBs. The tax was called the health promotion levy. So unlike other taxes of its kind, this was a sugar content-based tax. So it's one of the first SSB taxes that's based on sugar content. So the tax applies a 2.1 cent tax rate for every gram of sugar, both intrinsic and added above a four gram per 100 milliliter threshold. So that is to say that it's for very specific drinks. So the average tax ends up being about 10%. And so it's easy to really see the significance of interventions on SSBs and papers such as these, especially because sugar-sweetened beverage consumption is a major contributor of obesity, CVD, dental caries, and also significant healthcare costs. So, and it's especially important in middle and high income countries where two thirds of CVD deaths occur and the lowest income communities in those countries usually have the highest risk. So let's go to this study. So the authors conducted what's called a before and after study. 
So they estimated the changes in taxed and untaxed beverage intake one year after the tax. And according to them, examined for the first time the role of reformulation distinct from behavioral change, which I thought is really interesting and also don't really understand. Mm -hmm. So we could talk about Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) Data was collected from Langa, South Africa, and participants were 18 to 39 years old. They were first recruited in February and March of 2018, so two months before the tax, and then everybody was later recruited one year later. And they were given a single-day, 24-hour dietary recall. The authors developed what are called time-specific food consumption tables, or FCTs. Again, this is probably the thing that I really don't understand in this paper, (laughs) and I cannot wait (laughs) to get my questions answered on this because I just don't know. The good will explain it to us because I didn't get it either. Okay, sure. (laughs) (laughs) So they had three main outcomes, sugar intake, energy intake, and volume intake. And they did a two-part model, probe it to estimate the likelihood of consumption, and a GLM with a log link to estimate the amount consumed. And then basically they found that among the tax beverages, they found a reduction which is what we would expect in all three intakes, sugar, energy, and volume. And then among the untaxed beverages, they found increases in both the sugar and energy. And the authors ultimately claim that by using their FCT, they separate the components of behavioral change and reformulation from each other, which is really interesting. But again, we can get to it. So the ultimately, the results really suggest that and add to the literature that SSB taxes are an effective policy option for jurisdictions focused on improving public health, especially in this space. Uh, uh, fantastic, fantastic summary. And, you know, to me, the thing that I thought was was sort of really interesting about the idea for the study was that, you know, as they say, this was a uh, an approach to taxing, you know, so we've seen this kind of, you know, taxing uh, approach before, but this was sort of fairly unique in that they were they were taxing per gram above mm-hmm. this certain level. And so the, the authors were interested in in seeing whether or not it, it actually worked. I, I, I have to admit, I have serious well, not serious. I have questions about how it was they were like so well placed to have done this before and after study. Because obviously you can't do a, unless you're just happy to be doing it anyway, you can't do a before study until you know there's going to be the policy. So I I got really curious about that too. And oh, I was awesome. like, I was trying to dig into South African SSB laws. <laughs> and I think what happened was they announced it yep. like, several months before. So I think they were like, oh, okay, this is a natural experiment. And they talk about that in their limitations too, right? They're like, we might have actually missed the like a bigger change in consumption because people, when they announce it, think like, you know, the average public thinks, oh, you've announced it, this is happening, but there was Mm -hmm. actually kind of a lead up to it. So I was like trying to find exactly when they announced it. I couldn't figure it out, but I'm pretty sure it was like a six month lead up. So they had time to like, craft it before. Oh, no, fair enough. And that makes total sense to me. But I, I don't know about you, but if somebody gave me six months lead to do uh, like a food, free, like one of these things, oh, yeah. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get this done. Well, also, this seems like a magical town where you can go door to door. And like, I was like, <laughs> what place is this where this study is being done? They went door to door. They talked to nearly like every adolescent in this town. I know, it's awesome. It was amazing. I want to do all my studies in Langa, South Africa. 
Well, you you can in the future. Okay, so I, we've already kind of jumped into it. So give us, uh, Gideka, your take on on this study. What was interesting or or jumped out to you? What what critiques do you have? Yeah. So, I mean, I do want to talk about this behavioral change and reformulation, like how they parsed it out, because I still don't get it. And they really link it back to that FCT that they created. Right. They say that that you can tell what the like what percentage of it is due to reformulation because of that FCT. I don't buy it and I don't get it. <laughs> but I think overall, it is really interesting that you see a decrease in the sugar sweetened beverages that people are consuming. But like, you know, human nature, you see an increase in the untaxed ones. And one of the really key things that they didn't tax was fruit juice, which often has a ton of sugar in it. Mm-hmm. Right. So we actually have no idea like how much of that like shift went over to like I've like I've written in this paper somewhere people will find the sugar because it really just seemed <laughs> that like people just moved. I mean, I know they say overall there was some sort of decrease and sure, I believe it, but I think it's interesting to see that increase in the untax and that really stuck out to me and also that this community is so small and so stable that you can do a year like a study a year apart and still have like such good coverage of you know, the adolescents. I don't know. I thought that was really fascinating. So I, I have a question about that because you're saying that they went and talked to everyone. I was less clear on that because it's not a longitudinal design. No. They, yeah. And I, I don't think they captured like the people who did the pre didn't necessarily also do the post. In yeah. fact, I actually think it wasn't. Right. No, it definitely uh, yeah. wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. No, but they seem but, to. But, but why wasn't it? If they could really go door to like, why not go back to the same people? I was curious. And they and they got the geolocation of each house that they went to so that they um, made sure to cover every area. Yeah. But OK, why not use that same geolocation to make sure that you go back to the same house? Yeah. I, In fact, yeah. They, they one of their sensitivity analysis is to remove the people who took the pre survey. And it wasn't the end wasn't very high. I can't remember off the top of my head. And I was just, I was also confused. There was a couple like methodological things and maybe we have to cut them some slack because they put it together in six months or something. But, you know, like when there were multiple adolescents in a home, they decided like based on the house number, which adolescent to did, did anybody else pick up on that? I thought there yeah. was such a... Yeah, I thought if the house number was even, we'll pick the first <laughs> so, person. If that... so, these are, so, so that part actually didn't bother me because that's, I mean, those are actually fairly, you know, standard type approaches that the, you know, like the WHO cluster, yeah, like a, a, a vac, what are they called? The vaccine surveys do. And like, you know, unless mm. we have some reason to believe that, you know, people who consume lots of sugar-sweetened beverages always live in even-numbered houses, like, <laughs> yeah. probably yeah. probably should be fine. But, you know, yeah. like, uh, so that didn't bother me. But I, I, you know, sort of it was the the cross-sectional nature when it didn't seem like it had to be that I thought was interesting. But I, I do want to emphasize that, you know, as you said, like the, the idea of cutting them some slack, it's not that I don't, I, I do actually believe the results. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe the yeah. actual percentages are off a little bit. But... Like you, I had concerns about the whether we could really tell how much of this is behavioral change and how much of this is reformulation. So, Hoda, what about you? What, what was what jumped out to you? 
Yeah, so I thought this was really great. I mean, something that I found amusing particularly was, especially related to the lead up for the design, is that in 26, so the tax was April 2018. That's when it was implemented. But then in 2016, the tax was actually 20%. And after some conversations with the sugar industry, it ends up being 10%. Mm. And so I, I read up on that. And basically, there was a lot of concession to the sugar industry and a lot of pressure. And if you look at their infographics from the sugar industry and all the papers that they've written, it's mind boggling. The sugar tax affects our livelihoods. The sugar tax affects jobs. The sugar tax, it's just a very different narrative. And it's very interesting to see that. And so I was just thinking about ultimately public health's competition, Mm -hmm. right, with industries like this and what we have to do to implement interventions like this. So I thought the FCT aside, I believe the results, especially after seeing other SSB studies. But like like you, Matt, I'm just not sure about the percentages. Yeah. And so just to to SSB, sugar sweetened beverages, what was the other one? FF? FCT, the food consumption table. Sorry, Gita. Yeah. No, I was going to say it actually almost, to me, they really emphasize this like reformulation versus behavioral change distinction and how behavioral change was counting for most of it. It almost doesn't matter to me, right? Mm. Like if we can get the amount of sugar down in beverages, whether it's forcing industry to reformulate or changing behavior through like a financial incentive. Great. Let's just do it. Right. The ultimate public health impact is the same at the end of the day. Yeah. Totally agree with that. I, I, you know, we, we, the part we do agree with, we do accept is the total Mm -hmm. change with, you know, with some, some caveats that it might not be exactly perfectly measured, but I, I would agree with you. I mean, what we care about is, are we reducing the amount of sugar people are consuming? And they talked about these three mechanisms for how they do, for how they think that this is done. So a decrease in the purchases of sugar sweetened beverage or an increase in product reformulation and both leading to decreased sugar intake overall. So I thought that was really interesting to think about the different pathways in which sugar intake could be reduced through a intervention like a tax on SSB. Absolutely. And this was a relatively minor point that they brought up, but It's something that I guess we don't think about too much in America, but they had a point about like how drought impacts the beverages you consume. And that's such an interesting point, right? Like if you're in a drought, you don't have clean water and beverages with high amounts of sugar are cheaper. You're going to gravitate towards that, right? So it's just like a condition amongst global health things that has to be taken into consideration that we don't, I at least hadn't thought about at all. Yeah. Or, or when it's really hot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or when it's or when it's when the heat is really intense and you have your choice of a Yoohoo or a Coke and no water. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Right. So like, you know, it puts the responsibility on governments to like provide drinks that are cheap and healthy on some level. Yeah. And you you mentioned the, you know, the amount of funding that the, the beverage industry has to to both to advertise and then to fight any measures that are being used to limit the amount of, or not limit, but reduce the amount of consumption of sugar sweetened beverages that people have. And then you can take the opposite view, which is that public health, we have very little money yeah. to be able to go out and you know provide countermeasures or counter advertising or 
counter legal strategy. So it's, you know, we're definitely at a, a huge disadvantage when it comes to trying to fight the the efforts that the the beverage industry is going to use to get people to consume more. Absolutely. So it did strike me, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but when I looked at the kind of baseline factors in this population, that there there were some, it did seem like there were some differences between the two populations in the before and after that, that might lead you to think about whether or not there is some, I guess, confounding. I mean, it, maybe it's selection bias sort of in that the samples could have been different, but it's probably more likely to be some some confounding. And then I looked at it a bit more deeply, and it actually seems to be that there was more missing data at the end of the day in one of the groups versus the other. And I, I you know, it just struck me as a an interesting that they were able to that they had you know different amounts of missing data at different times. If you had done a, you wonder whether if they had done a longitudinal study, whether the missing data, you know, sort of would have been the same in in the before and after periods, or actually would have been worse in the after period because people are you know they talk to you once they don't really want to talk to you again. I don't know how it would have been play, you know would have played out, but it does seem to me that there is sort of some indication that these groups were a little bit different between the pre and the post period. Now they had, they had, you know, models to try and account for that, but uh, it was just a little surprise to me for these, you know, most of the time in, in, in epi, we're not doing random sampling of populations, but here's a case where they actually were to an extent Mm -hmm. doing random sampling. And yet, you know, they did seem to have some differences between the two populations before and after. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, the covariates that they adjusted for were age, sex, weekday versus weekend consumption, average daily temperature, and SES using this living standards measure, which apparently is a standard SES measure in in South Africa. What I found really interesting is I thought like in a perfect world, if they did a longitudinal analysis, they would have also maybe been able to collect information on food food intake. And that's what I would have really liked to see is some sort of adjustment or or controlling for food intake. Because like, uh, like you said, people, will find the sugar, right? People will find the sugar. I mean, I was looking up sugar contents all day in my (laughs) rabbit hole trying to look at this. I was like, and I I just find it really interesting because I mean, if you're going to tax, if I, if I can't get sugar sweetened beverages, that's fine. I'll eat pop tarts all day. You know what I mean? If I really want the sugar. And so I, I just think food needs to be accounted for in these studies. And to my knowledge, I haven't seen many studies that account for food. I had donuts for breakfast. (laughs) But Hoda's totally right because I kept, I don't know if anyone's ever tried to like actively give up sugar. I did. No, wait, why would you do that? I don't know. I like was like, my friend was like, let's do it. Let's like, like get rid of all added sugar in our life. Reduce, reduce seems to be a good goal, but I couldn't get rid of it. No, but it makes you a horrible person is what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Like by the fourth day, my, this was when I was in grad school, my office mate Annie just looked at me and went eat a cookie you're driving us insane (laughs) (laughs) because you feel like you have the flu like you feel horrible so like if you're if that's reduced from your beverage intake Hoda's totally right I think you're gonna kind of offset it so if the ultimate goal is to just reduce sugar intake overall in the prevention of obesity CBD all those things then we need a more thorough look at kind of consumption and they had it they did a 24-hour diet recall, right. you could easily get food intake in that. 
Yeah. Now yeah. maybe maybe that's a, the case where you know the 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 timeline was part of the the reason why yeah. they couldn't do that. I don't know. I'm curious to, for you both. I mean, when you read about 24 hour food frequency recalls, I mean, do you? like me sort of have some immediate concern like does 20 i mean i don't know why i i don't love it because there's no reason to think that if you're doing this in a large population and you're sampling it you know people at random that yeah a 24-hour food frequency doesn't tell you everything about my sugar consumption but you know for everyone you're gonna have presumably good days and bad days or is it just me just has a lot of bad no. days. Uh, <laughs> and, and so like on average, I, I, I would think it would be fine. And yet I hear 24-hour food frequency recall and I, I get a little nervous. Yeah. I mean, have you ever tried to do a 24-hour? I mean, I've tried and <laughs> let's just say I forget a few things. <laughs> I, 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 can't remember, I can't remember what I had for breakfast. I know that I had donuts, but I don't remember what else. <laughs> And I will, and I'll, I think I'll subconsciously forget how many donuts I've had for breakfast. Mm, good idea. Good idea. <laughs> I mean, like there was something in the paper also about like a social desirability bias when they're filling this out. If you know that the government is taxing sugar sweetened beverages, I also feel like part of you is like, I only had one Yoo-Hoo when you actually had three or whatever, you know. But I agree with you, Matt. Whenever I hear 24-hour food recall, I'm just like, that just depends on the day. And you're right. It probably averages out. But you catch me two days ago. I was eating salads. Today mm-hmm. I had chips for lunch. So <laughs> that's, it just doesn't seem representative. And I feel like I've always thought, and I know it's more work, is to do it over a week. Do a week of 24-hour recalls and have the person either yeah. call somebody and like have them do it over the phone with you or whatever. But then you at least get the average of that person. Yeah. But, but I think, I, actually, I think you hit on the point, which is that, you know, that I was thinking about, which is it isn't just that it, 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 it isn't perfect at capturing, you know, everything you'd want to know. It's that in this case, you could see, you, you could come up with a rationale where people would misreport right. more in the after period than the before period if people yep. are very aware that, you know, they're, they're taxing sugar-sweetened beverages and then there's all this talk on the news about sugar-sweetened beverages are bad and then you don't want to report it. Might not be so bad in this case because, as you said, like they were talking about this beforehand, Hoda, but, it, you know, it, it, it does occur to me that there could be some differential reporting there. Yep. There could be, and they certainly don't account for it by looking at, like, they talk about larger food consumption, like, metrics, right, like, on a city level or whatever, but they don't use those or account for those in their yep. study at all. All right. Any any last points anyone wants to raise on this one? They did a lot of work to make those FCTs. I still don't understand what they are, but they, like, <laughs> went to a lot of stores and read nutrition labels, and I just want to, like, tip a hat to that. That's a lot yeah. of work. <laughs> totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. I have to say about this study, I think that more studies should use the word heretofore, which is, <laughs> which is in this study. But I do have one question for you. How do you feel about studies that tell you the software that they used and not only the software, but the command that they used within the software? <laughs> I, so I have heard some people say it's absolutely essential and then... Personally, I, you know, it doesn't help me to know that they use the state at 2 p.m. command, but like some people consider it essential. So I, I, it's an, I'm curious what you all think. I don't know about essential, but I think 
think it's okay. I think it's nice. I mean, I was like, okay, use data, use that command. And maybe not the most essential use of real estate in the <laughs> well, in, well, here's the question. If they papers, only tell but... you that they use data and they don't tell you the command, which these authors did tell you the command, but if they only tell yeah. you that they use data, why would they then not tell you that they typed the manuscript in Microsoft Word? <laughs> like That's fair. And then That's we fair. emailed it using Google... <laughs> You know, like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know but if it's important. I feel like you see so often, right? Like SAS and R were used. I feel like I've done it in a paper because somebody was like, this is missing. But I, I don't know. I think it's dumb. Sorry. It's advertising. But... It's advertising for SAS. Yeah. 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 Can we can we also talk really quickly about the fact that this was part of a student's dissertation? Oh, I know. Amazing, huh? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I thought... Pretty, really, really awesome. And I like that they like stated that up front and center. That was kind of cool. I know. Yeah. So we we have we reviewed like a number of papers on this program where you know things that are published in like the New England Journal of Medicine, where the lead authors, you know, because the New England Journal makes you put your degrees, or is it Lancet? I can't remember which one makes you get, put your degrees in there, and their degree is um, Bachelor of Science. And it's like, ah, oh, when I was when I finished my Bachelor of Science, I was pretty much you know. Sitting around watching cartoons. I was not writing New England Journal of Medicine papers. Certainly not. <laughs> no. All right. So why don't we move on to our second segment where it's our deep dive. And we're going to talk about what are called the COPE Ethical Guidelines for Peer Reviewers. So the idea behind this. So, so I can't remember where it was that I came across this. I think it was on Twitter. But this COPE is a... Uh, a group that provides leadership in, they say, they provide leadership in thinking on publication ethics and practical resources to educate and support uh, members and other professionals' voice in current debates. So they put together this publication called Promoting Integrity in Scholarly Research and Its Publications. And they come up with these sort of what they call ethical guidelines for peer reviewers. Now, it seems to me that, you know, Nobody gets really nobody really gets training in how to do peer review. It's sort of something that you either learn from a mentor or for many of us, you just kind of do it and hope mm -hmm. that it's right and maybe you get better at it over time. But there's no like there's nobody teaches you how to do it. And certainly there's no one who teaches you anything about sort of the ethics of doing it. So they have a bunch of you know points around what they they propose for you know these sort of ethical guidelines in my estimation and and I, maybe you all see this very differently but to me it's sort of all boiled down to basically declare your conflicts of interests and then you know do the peer review thoroughly and submit it on time am i i mean am i, am I missing something like is there more to it than this and if i'm right are there things that you think really sort of should be in a document like this? So, Gitika, I'll start with you. What what was sure. your take in reading this? So, the one thing I agree with, you know, kind of your summary of what they're trying to say. The one thing that they did mention a couple of times that got me thinking was the thing where they were like, you have to do your own peer review, right? Like, if a student helps you or whatever, you have to declare it. You have to ask for permission. I don't think I have... Like review, like the only training I've had is I've had mentors say, do you want to review this with me? And I'll go review it. And then we'll come and sit down and talk through my review. And ultimately they'll edit it or whatever and send it 
but I don't think those people ever asked an editor if that was okay. I certainly don't think I got peer review credit. You know, like there was this whole section in here about like that person's name has to be listed. I don't think those things happened. And I don't think people do that for, I don't care as long as the person who was asked to peer review actually looks through the comments and like make sure that the student hasn't just gone off the rails, but I've never seen that happen. Okay. So I, 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 I wouldn't say I, I do it very often that I have a, a student uh, help with peer review. Yeah. But when I do, I do always let the journal know that because, you know, it, it is, you know, I am like they, the, the journal did ask me to do sure. this. And so I just want to be upfront that I didn't do this alone. And so, you know, my, my assumption is the journal would not be very happy if I said, you know, like if they say, do you want to review this article? And I say, Sure, I'd be happy to. And then I, I give it to my kids and then, you know, they fill it out and I just submit it as my own. I have never, ever done that. I just want to be clear. But if I did, I would declare it. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe you should declare it. I just I would love to hear from Hoda's experience because I have like I've been in very controlled, you know, like where it wasn't like I just wrote it and they submitted it. They definitely like looked it over and edited it and based on there and like it was like a learning experience mm-hmm, for me, mm-hmm. but, and maybe they did ask the journal. I don't know, but I've never been a part of a conversation with a journal being like, this is a student who's going to be like also helping me peer review. I don't know if you have to do that, but I, I actually think that happens less than the cope people think it does. Mm, okay. Hoda, what's your experience there? Yeah, I I definitely want to echo the sentiment that nobody teaches you how to peer review and nobody teaches you or tells you, I think this is like a thing on Twitter, how many, how many you're supposed to accept, what's, what's, what's the range of, of peer reviews that you should do in like a month or a, or a year. Right. But I think that the way that I've ever learned to peer review, if I have, is that mentors will kindly do the peer review, submit it to the journal and then send them, send me the peer review. If like I ask for it and it will be blinded and everything or it will be after the paper has been published. And that's been so, so helpful just to kind of see what an objective uh, review looks like and what a bad one also looks like. Right. And so, I mean, I, I think bad in my case is like talking about the authors, right. Or talking mm-hmm. about the, Oh, the study is absolutely useless. No, don't say that. <laughs> don't say that. Like <laughs> there's a way to be objective about this, but also give criticism that's constructive. And I think the mentors that do that or the people that review papers in that way, I think it really, it goes miles. And I think you don't have to write a lot. You don't have to give a lot of feedback. It just has to be good feedback, something the authors can actually do something about, you know? Well, and it should be, I think, about the methods of the study or analytic techniques. I hate those reviews where you get where you're like, you cited the wrong person, you didn't cite so-and-so. And you're just like, Okay, great. Do you know what I mean? And like that sort of stuff drives me nuts in a peer review. And I think that's what you learn from good mentors is, you know, how to give constructive feedback that's helpful and not destructive. Yeah. Okay. So along those lines, then let me ask you, did you find the following sentence to be enlightening or necessary? The what they say is be specific in your critique and provide supporting evidence with appropriate <laughs> references to substantiate general statements to help editors in their evaluation. Be professional and refrain from being hostile or inflammatory 
and from making libelous or derogatory <laughs> personal comments or unfounded accusations. Um, duh. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Duh. So, like, the fact that that even has to be said, I think, is a problem, right? But, duh. I, so that's exactly, my first reaction was, like, no one needs, this does not need to be said. And then my second reaction was, well, actually, <laughs> you know, it kind of does, because there are yeah. actually, I've definitely gotten back critiques that I thought, well, I, okay, so I'm not in the area of anything libelous or derogatory in personal comments but but you know i've definitely had things in in peer review that was hostile to the work and it came through it wasn't a critique of the work it was hostile to the work and i you know i, I just don't see what what value that has who does that help nobody and it doesn't right and there's a whole also section in these guidelines that that talks about how peer reviewers must be chosen based on like their expertise and you should only get us somebody who's an expert to blah, blah, blah. That doesn't happen a lot of the time because people are so niche, right? And oftentimes if you're in a specific, and busy, and if you're in a specific niche, like I just said no to a peer review because the first author is a friend of mine, right? Like I, that's unfair, but I know her work super well. Like, but at the same, do you know what I mean? Like, so you run out of people at some point. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. And I think there, you know, the, with the proliferation of journals, there are, you know, you're getting more and more requests to to review all the time that I, I say no to. And as somebody who is on the other side of it, trying to find reviewers, you know, I know who the perfect people to review this paper is. And every time I debate with myself if whether it's even worth it, to send it to those people because I know they're going to reject it. And then I think, no, you know, I should send it to them and let them reject it. And I do. But they almost like I can almost mm, let's say 90 percent of the time predict who's going to say no, like who's the best person and that they are going to say no to me, in which case then I have to find, you know, somebody who is pretty good, but isn't the perfect person. I mean, my old mentor gave me like a formula. He was like, for every two submissions to a journal, you have to do one peer review. That was his formula for me. And I was like, that's pretty good, right? And not acceptances, submissions. Because he was like, that's just what we owe our community. And that's fine. So I've kind of stuck with that. <laughs> and But I'm, I'm early career. I have the time and it's helping me, you know, learn and grow. At some point, I'm going to be too busy. <laughs> Okay, so can we can we go back to that math? Yeah. For every two yeah. submissions. This is what he told me. Two two papers are published or two submissions, period. Two submissions. So for like but if like, you submit one paper to yeah. five different journals before it gets published, that puts you on the hook for yeah. 2.5 reviews. Reviews. Okay. So now that might sound absurd in the number like that's going to be a lot but actually think about it the other way so first of all I w- the only quibble i would have with that is it's 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 not necessarily per submission it should be per times it was sent out for a review per review i guess yeah because if it didn't get sent out for a review then you didn't yeah. take up somebody else's time i guess but, he had confidence that i they, they would get reviewed if I submitted <laughs> well i'm sure he also had con- he or she also had confidence that it would only going to have to get reviewed by probably two journals before it was accepted at most yeah but um but most articles get reviewed by two three sometimes four people so the math doesn't actually work out 
Because if you're only contributing one review for every two times yours gets reviewed and you need three people to review, we wouldn't have enough people to review. Yeah, and we don't. Yeah. <laughs> so I <laughs> And we don't. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> but also especially with the crazy deadlines the journals have been giving, yes. right? And especially in the pandemic. It's I I promise you I have other things to do. <laughs> like like unfortunately or not, I have other things to do. Please give me more time. And it's ridiculous that you have to keep asking. It's like I can either do this really fast or you can just give me the time so I can do my due diligence with it. You know what I mean? I just think it's ridiculous. And what drives me crazy is when I've submitted to that journal and they took three months to get back to me. But when they asked me to review, they give me two weeks. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you have to, well, that doesn't work for me. Okay, so I find all that maddening. But the thing I find even more maddening is then your paper gets accepted and months go by and you hear nothing. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you get a copy, you know, the copy editing and it has to be turned around within 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. Like you, and it's really a high pressure it, moment. Yeah, which, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what, what are they going to do if I don't turn it around? Are they going to pull the paper? No. So where does that come from? I don't know. And I actually, I have literally gotten one of those emails while I was flying to India and mm-hmm. had to add, like, I was on Emirates and I asked a flight attendant if I could get the Wi-Fi. Like, I was like, I just can't pay this ridiculous amount for Wi-Fi. Will you share yours with me for like, because I was like, I did it on a flight, like, because they were like, you have 24 hours. And I had no idea what time zone I was in. So I just did it. But I was, after I did it, I was like, they're not going to the presses, right? Like, it's not like there was a, like someone actually waiting to print this for me. What was the rush? I don't, I don't get it. And I am, generally speaking, I am a, I'm a rule follower. Yeah, but same. that is a rule I do not follow. Because I, <laughs> I just can't see, A, how they could ever enforce it. B, how there could ever be any consequences. And so I, you know, I try my best, but I'm not, I, I don't feel beholden to that deadline. And the thing is, so that exa- the anecdote I just told was my first paper, like my very first first author <laughs> paper. So I went into a panic because I was like, they won't publish it if I don't copy edit this in 24 hours. But I'm with Matt. Yeah. Do it in 72. I'm honestly scared. I'm honestly so scared in those situations. I'm like, I have to drop everything <laughs> or else people's name will be spelled wrong and it'll fall on me. And I just imagine them like sending it down the elevator to the, to the, to the printing room. And I'm just like, what is like, it's just so high stakes for me. <laughs> okay. So along those lines, I need you both to weigh in on a, on an issue. So we had a paper that we published that somehow, after copy editing, the journal added the name of the first author again at the end as the last author. <laughs> the question is, does she get credit for two publications or just one out of that? Two. 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 I totally agree. 100%. She gets to list that, she gets to list that twice on her CV. I will say one thing that Cope did not talk about that I do think we should talk about is yeah. how people, I don't know, I see it occasionally on Twitter, are talking anonymously about a paper that they're reviewing yeah. or a paper that they're going to see go into publication soon. And it's usually in a negative light. And yep. I just don't think that's cool. Like, don't do it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you raise a good point. I mean, they they 
these are supposed to be about ethical guidelines. And, and I, I do think, you know, talking about a, a, a manuscript that was sent to you in, in confidence is not something even in anonymous terms you should be you should be talking about, especially because it's one of two things is going to happen. Either somehow it's never going to be published, in which case we don't need to talk about it, or it is going to be published and we can talk about it then. Right, exactly. And sometimes you see like people being like, this method was used. Is that correct? And people like weigh in and I'm just you can't take just like one tiny sentence or like one portion of a paper without the full context of what this, you know, what the researchers were trying to do and then lay it up for public debate. Like that's not ethical. Yeah. Or even in a positive light. I remember reviewing a paper one time. I, oh my God, I love this paper. I still do. It's still one of my favorite papers and I will occasionally look it up just to make me happy. It's so good. And I wanted nothing more than to post about it on Twitter, but it's supposed to be in confidence, whether negative or positive. Keep a secret. It's fine. <laughs> and when it's published, you can post it and write, I love this paper, period. Like, yeah, you don't need to exactly. say you've reviewed it. You love the paper. Exactly. Yep. Totally agree. All right. Any last points anyone wants to raise on this one before we move on? All right. So let's move to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing, where we talk about some things that are just of interest to us, things that we saw in the news or articles or anything we are interested in. So, Geeka, do you want to do you want to go first? Yeah. So my amazing and amusing for today, it has to do with Simone Biles stepping down from the gymnastics competition due to her mental health. And I know it's not like exactly public health, but I've been thinking about it a lot in the context of like a lot of researchers I know, scientists, uh, students who we're all running on low in terms of our reserves right now. And I think there's just a lot of strength in just taking a step back and going, I need a minute, I need a break. And I know a lot of students who are really running themselves ragged. So like, let's all use her as an example to step back, take care of ourselves first. Our dissertation, paper, whatever, will be there when we come back. That's my amazing for today. Okay, so this Absolutely. is this is fantastic. So we we normally have a, a a rule on this program that we cannot discuss things for the amazing and amusing that have previously been discussed. But the reason for that rule is because I normally find an article and then I bring it in and I talk about it and then I completely forgot that I talked about it and then I'll talk about it again and Nick will very, very gently and politely point out that I've done that. But in your case, you have you had no idea that no. the previous podcast episode that we recorded, one of our other guests brought it in, which I think speaks to the fact that this is really resonating with people right now. I, I it's just it's 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 such a clear example of you know something that reflects back on us and that many of us are seeing ourselves in this situation, not in the sense that we have Olympic abilities, but just that, you know, that there is something very human in, in what she chose to do and something very brave. Absolutely. Mm. And I, I, you know, I read the news and I thought to myself, isn't that all of us? Like, aren't we all just exhausted right now from everything? Like two years of a pandemic work from home, people who have kids, all like, don't we all want to say, like, I'd like one week hiatus from my job to, like, work on me? That'd be great. Yeah. So this this feels to me like the thing that people are not talking about enough in this story. Like, it, it, it isn't just a story about an Olympian who, you know, was was not feeling like she could compete at her highest level 
and therefore decided to withdraw. She, she like everyone else, has been going through a, a year yes. that is unlike any that we have ever experienced in, in our lives. Why would we not expect that people are going to have, you know, are, are not going to be at the top of their games or are, are you know, going to need breaks or whatever it is? I, it's just a really interesting, interesting story. Yeah, and I know we have to move on, but like you're seeing it in other places, right? Naomi Osaka did a similar thing at Wimbledon. And again, she kind of couched it in like, I don't want to do press conferences, anxiety, because they're causing me anxiety rather. And that's fair and fine at any point. But of course, they're causing her even more anxiety because we've lived these weird isolated lives. Like, sometimes too many people talk to me at the grocery store now and I get stressed out. It's just we're not. (laughs) Okay, the world is not okay, and we have to acknowledge that and be kind to one another. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I think it really highlights that with burnout, you can't just always address it just with physical rest. You gotta you you gotta mentally rest too. It just doesn't cut it, you know? And the people that try to address burnout just by physically resting their bodies, I think will find that it doesn't always work out and that they need to they need to rest and take and make space for themselves in many different ways with mental health, in my opinion, being at the top of that. Yeah. 100% agree. Totally agree. Oh, that, that's a good one. Well, thank you for bringing that one in. Hoda, what do you have? Well, two things. One, that I was really curious about the other sugar-sweetened beverage taxes mm. that are around. And I found uh, some really quick facts that one in 40, uh, sugar-sweetened beverage taxes are in 40 other countries. And in the U.S., there are really a lot of studies about the sugar tax in Berkeley, California. So I'm just encouraging, that's a plug for Berkeley, California, but um, <laughs> uh, to really like, if anyone's interested in this topic, I think lo- looking at studies about, about that sugar sweetened beverage tax is really interesting because it's in specifically in Berkeley and was not passed in neighboring cities, including SF and Oakland. So um, it's really interesting to see kind of this border and to see what happens uh, in the comparison between SF, Oakland and Berkeley. Yeah. Very cool. And I got... I guess my other amusing thing is I mentioned I went down a rabbit hole of looking up <laughs> looking up the sugar content mm-hmm. and everything I'm eating and I found an article that said pop tarts are evil. No. So I no, love no, pop tarts. No. no, they are not no, evil. No, that, I know. That, that article is wrong. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was my immediate reaction. No, they are not evil and this article is evil. Anyway, it turns out the article was just trying to make a point that there's a differential between the sugar uh, content of the fruit Pop-Tarts and then the like the, the new flavors like cookies and cream or whatever. And you want to guess what has more sugar? The fruit. The, 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 un, the unfrosted <laughs> ones have more sugar than the frosted ones. I think I think in that sense they're fairly similar, but it's the fruit, right? You're right. It's the fruit. They have more sugar, and I'm like, well, this officially this article is evil, and and apparently pop tarts have 35 grams of sugar, while like a can of Coke has like 44, and a peach has like 13. I was like, what is going on with this world? I need to have more pop tarts in my life, and I don't care what this article says, and I'm gonna keep eating them. That's that is that is smart. You do you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do do you have any idea who wrote this article? Um, Lucifer. To be fair, it seems like a person that's really nice. And honestly, the blog was about a sugar intake for diabetics. So <laughs> I'm I feel really bad in that regard. But <laughs> okay. So the the reason that I was asking you who wrote it was uh-huh. many many years ago. I had this question about 
the 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 sugar content in different kinds of pop tarts and so i went and looked it up and i found this article that was talking about the this mysterious thing that the which is what i said which is that the unfrosted <laughs> pop tarts have more oh, that's sugar true. than the frosted oh. ones oh. unfrosted have more sugar than the frosted ones that is strange and so i read this article and I get to the bottom of the article and find that it was written by my cousin. So, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah. So I then had to call him up and say, first of all, what's going on? But second of all, like, what a strange coincidence. Yeah. And third of all, we can't be family anymore. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not going to banish someone for the family for for providing bad Facts. news but uh you're a good person well, Matt. i don't actually, know if i would have done the same <laughs> no because i think it's good news right because i like the frosted kind yeah so yeah. that's but i guess it makes sense they have to like compensate the flavor right they the fact that it doesn't have frosting they kind of have to compensate for that to make the product good so i guess in that regard it makes sense i guess i, I just didn't know I, I don't know i don't know exactly why okay don't kick me off this podcast i haven't eaten a pop tart since high school but I know, oh I'm God, sorry, no. I'm sorry. I'm going to eat a lot on Monday, apparently. <laughs> Give uh, me your address, I'll send them to you. Everyone should have pop tarts in their life. do you life. guys eat them, like, toasted or not? Like, what's no. the, just, like, raw Pop-Tart? Okay, where did this term raw Pop-Tart come from? Okay, <laughs> original, OG Pop-Tart, uncooked. In their natural state. Sure, okay, okay. I mean, maybe on Monday I'll turn into a Pop Tart convert. I don't know. Uh, Pop Tarts are, are wonderful. So okay. yeah, they're let's amazing. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. We should get some Pop Tart sponsorship for all Epi Twitter talks about Pop Tarts. I, I mean, come on, sponsor us. Big big Pop Tart. If you're listening, we would love some sponsorship. Okay, so let me let me give you mine. So did you all hear about this story? Th- th- this article that I believe was retracted, I'm not 100% sure, that was published that was sort of supposed to look at the you know adverse events related to the COVID vaccine and then compare it with the benefits of the COVID vaccine mm-hmm. and came to the conclusion that you know the, the, the harms were way, way worse than the benefits. And I, I believe it was retracted because it was full of highly problematic assumptions, one of which being they, they only looked at like, the trial data for the benefits of COVID and the trial was, you know, they were short term. They were not looking at the long-term benefits. So, so you're comparing, you know, uh, apples and oranges. So it was highly flawed. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is that the authors of that study also published, and I'm, I got this from Retraction Watch, which looks at all the you know, papers that have either been retracted or should be retracted. The authors of that study had another paper that they published in JAMA Pediatrics, which questioned the safety of masks in children. So you can already now start to get the sense that this group has an agenda that they are pushing. So you can already see that this is going to be problematic. But they used some data for information on, on I believe it was on vaccines for this particular study that is of questionable quality. There were some issues with the quality of this data. And so people were pointing that out. When the authors were questioned about using this data, the response was as follows. 
We are happy to concede that the data we used, the large Israeli field study to gauge the number needed to vaccinate in the blank study to estimate side effects and harms, are far from perfect, and we said so in our paper. But we did not use them incorrectly. We used imperfect data correctly. We are not responsible for the validity and correctness of the data, but for the correctness of the analysis. We contend that our analysis was correct. How could somebody ever think that it was okay to take complete data that you consider to be inaccurate, use it to build a model, and then say, you know, it doesn't really matter that the data was bad. We did the analysis right. I was just kind of floored by this. I mean, haven't they heard garbage in, garbage out? Like, I, <laughs> I've heard it. Yeah, I mean... I think I think the problem with that is that someone maybe not in our field or like a layperson reading that might say, oh, maybe it's just the data was true. Right. It, there's like an implication there that I think to the public reading, it might not convey the same thing that we're getting out of it. And I I just no, don't say stuff like that. No. Like, what a scapegoat, ridiculous thing to say. It, it, it's interesting. I mean, I you know, we could we could speculate about what the motives were of these authors based on the you know, the different results, but, but like, leave that aside. I often find that, you know, it, it, people, when legitimate critiques of their study are given, you know, get, get very defensive, even when it's very clear, like it's a legitimate critique. And I always wonder, like, why not just simply say, like, yeah, we, we accept that as a valid critique. Here's why, you know, we still think that there is, you know, there's, you know, importance to our our results even though there are some flaws as opposed to just saying like eh you know it's not really our responsibility to to use good data to build a, a model to to predict something you know and as they say in this case like I, I you know i i think there are probably reasons why they're saying this but but in general it always seems to me better to if there is a if there's a legitimate critique to accept it and if there isn't to you know explain in a in a clear way why the critique isn't isn't totally justified i don't know yeah it's a weird a weird world we live in and i i honestly respect the people that do right it communicates a, a profound respect for the science and a commitment to it and i think that that's really really important yeah and i think this is an example of where like your hubris gets in the way of like your science yeah. which it often does you know it does but it shouldn't right like we're here to do good work and Except the flaws, all there is no such thing as a perfect study. So if someone is offering a critique, there's probably some validity to it. So listen and talk about it. I don't know. I just I really hate when people get very very defensive of their science. It's it's annoying and it's not fun. That's not what I'm here to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying the data is a bad person. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying <laughs> you're a bad person. person. I'm saying I'm saying the data is bad. It's very simple. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Totally agree. Well. That is the end of our program. I just want to thank you both for coming on the program and being guest hosts. This was a this was a really fun episode to do. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, thank you so much. Next time we do this, we should have pop tarts. Oh, there should <laughs> there should be pop tarts at everything. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I'm setting Hoda a basket of pop tarts on her birthday. Awesome. <laughs> no, I'll send you one. Yeah, no, I'll send that's you true. one. That's true. That's <laughs> true. So. That is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at 
PopHealthyX. You could tweet me at, at @profmadfox or Gitika at Gitika Kalu or Hoda at, at Hoda Majid or Don at, at Dthea1 or Chris at ID.gill. Or as always, you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www. .pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed it, and we'll look out for our next episode. Mm-hmm.